I see a couple answers to prayer that are uh, sitting out in the congregation today. So I want to say uh, thank you, dear Lord, for uh, bringing Margie Spears back here with us here. It's been a little bit, and uh, she's been really battling some tough stuff. But boy, it's great to see your smiling face. What an encouragement here today. And then also, uh, Warren, brother, after surgery, pretty uh, pretty rigorous one at that. And here you are, brother. Here you are. What an answer to prayer that is. We give God all the glory for all of that as well. So warms my heart. Warms my heart to see you all here today. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 8 as we begin a new section here this morning. I want to remind you where we've been already without going and rehashing all of that. I want you to remember that the epistle to Hebrews was written to a group that comprised of true believers, professing believers, and the unsaved. Pretty much what's in every church ever since. Uh, Every church has the same makeup today. Throughout each section, the author of Hebrews often speaks to each group while he's addressing the entire congregation. He'll kind of kind of pick and narrow down, if you will, a specific group that he's speaking to. But most recently, the author of Hebrews is addressing those professing believers and true believers who are tempted to abandon Christ and return to Judaism under the threat of persecution. That's what they're worried about. Remember, their kids can't go to the uh, rabbinical schools. They can't worship in the synagogue, right? They're ostracized in the market. They're scorned, laughed, ridiculed, mocked. And uh, they're thinking, boy, you know, it'd be a lot easier to just go back to the old system here. And so uh, some were being tempted to, to fall back into Judaism. So they're asking themselves tough questions. Why, do, why should we endure this intense persecution for our faith in Christ? Can't we do Christ and Judaism? Can't we, can't we just do a little, can we sprinkle a little of the old, you know, can we put Christ on top of Judaism or sprinkle a little Judaism with Christ and And uh, the answer, of course, is no. So to counter this danger that would befall them should they leave their profession of faith and return to Judaism, the author sets forth this explanation from scriptures on why Jesus is better. If you want to have a theme for Hebrews, that's it, right? Jesus is better. Christ is better. If you want to know, if you want to sum up that book, that's what it is. The whole book is about why Jesus is better, okay? Why he's better. And so since the beginning of the epistle, we have seen that Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua, demonstrating again and again and again that Jesus is better than everything and everyone associated with the Old Covenant. But the key to the administration of the Old Covenant that God had made with man was the priests. And so he spends a lot of time now telling you why Jesus is a better high priest, why he's our great high priest. Matter of fact, from chapter 8 all the way to the middle of chapter 10, he's going to keep showing you again and again why this is important. The priesthood was the means by which God mediated his covenant with his people. It was the means by which God said, this is what I expect of you. This is how I want you to live. Here's the way you should be responding to me. Here's the way that you should worship me. Here's the way that you should pray to me. And remember, because of sin, we could not approach God. We needed a mediator. That was, again, that was evident again and again and again in Scripture. And so the Levitical priesthood was the essential key to how the Old Covenant would function. And the priests really 
were the key to that. So which is why, beginning in chapter 4, verse 14, all the way through chapter 7, the author of Hebrews has been comparing the Levitical priesthood with a new priesthood. Remember in chapter 4, verse 14, he said, We have a great high priest. Incidentally, only Jesus is called the great high priest in all of Scripture. Okay, He says, We have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. And that from there on until chapter 10, we're going to keep on hammering that. All the way through chapter 5, and then again in 6, comparing again and again and again the priesthood of Jesus Christ and the Levitical priesthood. And why it was essential that they were mature enough to get this important theology. Then in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, after a very scary warning passage, he picks up the theme of Jesus as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And he continues and expands on that theme from there all the way through chapter 7. And we learn some very important things about Jesus' priesthood from the order of Melchizedek that was different from the other priesthood that help us understand why our great high priest is far better than any priest from the tribe of Levi. So again in chapter 7, here's what we learn. We learn that the Melchizedek priesthood was better because it was eternal. The other priesthoods were not eternal. They had a period of time they served, and that was it. But Jesus is in the order of the Melchizedekan priesthood, and that priesthood is eternal. It never ends. Secondly, the Melchizedekan priesthood, of which Jesus Christ is a priest, was confirmed by an oath, if you remember that. Confirmed by an oath. We studied the fact that when God makes an oath, nothing can change that. Right? It's the same way when he makes a promise. When God says it and makes a promise, it's true, it's going to happen, nothing can thwart that. But in a couple rare instances in Scripture, God makes a promise and an oath. Why does he do that? Well, he doesn't do it for his benefit. He doesn't do it as a safeguard to make sure he won't change his mind. He does it for our benefit because he knows we'll need that extra reassurance because at times our faith will be weak. So, uh, on the other hand, uh, God never made an oath to the Levitical priesthood. Why? Because, as we found in chapter 7, verse 11, the Levitical priesthood was always destined to change. It was always going to change. From the very beginning, it was going to change. Thirdly, we saw that the priesthood of Jesus Christ is better because it's grounded in the character, the internal character of Jesus. Remember, all the old Levitical priests, if you came from the right tribe and you didn't have any physical blemishes, you're in. You're our new pastor, okay? You're the priest. Nothing about spiritual qualifications, nothing internal, but Jesus, as our great high priest from the Melchizedekan order, his priesthood was grounded in his very character, in his sinlessness, in his truth, in his purity. Not external things, internal things. Fourth, we saw that the Melchizedekan priesthood of Christ is better because it was perpetual. It never ceases. It never ends. It just goes on and on and on and on. Because Jesus is, is eternal, so is his priesthood. And, beloved, that means so is his ministry to us. It is perpetual. It never ends. We don't have to make office appointments with Christ to reach out to him. We don't have to say, I'm sorry, you know, beep. Okay, 8 to 5, Monday through, please, you know, go through the 15 different messages, right? You know, press 9, press 7, plus, oh, forget it. I'm not even going, right? That's, that's how I get. 
Are you guys with me here? I was just explaining how I make uh, doctor's appointments. Just kind of, I didn't, I didn't really flush that out. But that's me when I try to call the doctor's office and make an appointment, which I never do. I actually, Cindy does it all the time. But I get, I get frustrated anyway. All right. Yes. Uh, thank you. Let me focus back in on what we're talking about. All right. Number fifth, we saw in the final verses of chapter seven, and here's what I want you to see here in the final verses, like verses twenty-six to twenty-eight. Uh, Jesus' priesthood is better because he offers one sacrifice only. Not an endless repetition of sacrifices. Nor does he need to ever offer up a sacrifice for his own sins. Remember, the high priest, before he could go into the Holy of Holies, on the Day of Atonement, you can find this in Leviticus chapter 16, the first thing he had to do was what? Make atonement for his own sin. Because if he walked into the presence of God with unatoned sin, what would happen? He would die. He would die. So you had to atone for your own sin first. But Jesus never has to do that. Why? Because he is the sinless one. Far greater. And he only needed to make one sacrifice, and he didn't offer up a repetition of sacrifices again and again and again because his sacrifice was enough. It is finished. Once and once for all time. The Levitical priests had to offer up a sacrifice for their own sins before they could even enter in. And those sacrifices need to be offered up again and again because they could only provide a temporary covering for their sins, not complete and forever forgiveness like Jesus offered. Finally, we see in the last two verses of chapter 7, Jesus' priesthood is better because Jesus provides us the hope of eternal salvation. Our salvation is not rooted in our performance. It's rooted in Christ. So it's a forever salvation. It's an eternal salvation. If our salvation was based upon our performance, then we might as well, I must just be a yo-yo, okay? Because I've probably lost my salvation six times this morning already, and then I'd have to try and gain it back, right? It's all rooted in Christ, not, it's rooted in him and in his complete and final atoning work on the cross on our behalf. And because of that, our hope is anchored in Christ who is seated where? Within the veil, in the Holy of Holies, that's where Christ is seated. And because he's our great high priest, anchored, it tells us, anchored within the veil, Jesus is able to save us completely and forever, and nothing, say that with me, nothing can ever change that truth. Nothing. That's a wonderful truth. And our great high priest gives us full and continual access to the Holy of Holies through Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And no Levitical priest could do anything like that. They couldn't offer up a sacrifice that would atone for sins for all time, nor could they provide continual access to the throne of God, but Jesus can, and he did. That's our great high priest. And so with all that as a background, there's no doubt that Jesus is our great high priest. It's far better than any priest of the old covenant from Aaron through the entire line of Levitical priests to follow. All of that leads us to verse 1, chapter 8. But before we do, let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, for this day. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder and the challenge from your word of what a great high priest we have. And Father, may we fully understand what that means to us by the end of this hour. And as we prepare our hearts, Lord, for the Lord's Supper, may we be reminded of the cost that was paid for us to reap the benefits of our great high priest seated at the throne of majesty. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's look at chapter 8, verse 1. Here we go. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. First, Jesus is a better high priest because of his position. His position. I just realized now that I never handed out the notes that I put together for you. Okay, his position, all right? So write them down now. You'll fill in the blanks next week when I uh, remember. All right, Jesus is a better high priest because of his position. Now, notice here it says the main point. Some of you may have uh, the sum. It refers to all of that whole discussion concerning the priesthood of Christ. That's discussed from chapter 4 through chapter 7 that we just got done covering. Here's the point. All those things I was telling you about Jesus and Melchizedek, here's what the author is telling us. Here's the main point. All those things I was telling you, they're designed to teach you this, that Jesus is better than the Old Testament priesthood that descended from Levi and Aaron. Don't you just love it when the author says, now, I just spent three chapters telling you all about Jesus, but in case you miss it, here's the main thing I want you to have. I don't know about you, but sometimes I need that, where the author goes, don't miss this. Why is he better? Look at our text. First of all, he is seated. Okay? He is seated. Why is seated in a better position? What makes that better than standing? Well, the fact that Jesus is seated is very important here. The Levitical priest never sat down. Ever. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Go over a couple, uh, a couple books to your right. <clears throat> Verse 11, 11 and 12. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all times, did what? Sat down at the right hand of God. No Levitical priest could ever sit down because the work they were doing was never finished. Ever finished. From sun up to sundown, they were knee deep in blood, making sacrifices for people all day long. All day long, nothing but continual sacrifices. Why? Because that offering only covered that sin. And if I left there and sinned again on my way home, guess what? I grab another sacrifice. Here we go again. I think I would just camp at the temple, but that's just me. All right, because the offering only covered that sin, there you were. If you left there and sinned again, you had to go back. That's right, you're back again tomorrow to make another offering, another sin offering on your behalf. The only way a priest could sit down was if people would stop sinning. Well, we even know how that works out, right? So, which is why no priest ever sat down. There you go. And even if he wanted to sit down, there's no place for him to sit anyway. 
You look at all the different temples and all the different tabernacles, there's no seat in there. There's only the mercy seat. Just the mercy seat. There's only one seat in the holy place, and that was the mercy seat, and that was the one place no priest would ever consider sitting down at, trust me. To do so would mean certain and instantaneous death. Nobody ever sat on the mercy seat but the Shekinah glory of God. That's it. Now the priest would go in there in fear and trepidation on the Day of Atonement and stand in awe once a year, sprinkle blood on that mercy seat, and then turn around and get out of there as quickly as they could. There's a reason why they had the little bells you know, sewn in around the bottom, right? a little rope tied to their ankle. It's like, wow. I hope you were really thorough when you went with your sins before you walked in there, right? I hope you didn't do anything blasphemous while you're in there, like try to sit down on the mercy seat because I'm not going in after you. Just tug on the rope and pull me out of there if that's the case. No, the only one who ever sat down in the Holy of Holies according to Scripture is our great high priest, Jesus Christ. That's it. The writer of Hebrews says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those that are sanctified. Jesus Christ, through the perfect sacrifice of himself, reconciled men to God. He did it all. The work is finished. As far as your salvation is concerned, beloved, he is sitting down because it is finished. There's nothing to add to it. Despite the efforts of many today to keep trying to add things to your salvation, it is finished. Jesus paid it all which is why he and only he is seated in the Holy of Holies. Only God is seated in the Holy of Holies. So Jesus was a better high priest because of his position. What position was that? Seated. Unlike the Levitical priests that never sat down because their work was never complete, our Lord sat down because by his one sacrifice, his work was complete once and for all time. But he was not just seated. He was also seated at the right hand of God. What does that mean? This reminds me of a funny story. Little Bobby was spending the weekend with his grandmother after a particularly trying week in kindergarten. And his grandmother decided to take him to the park on Saturday morning. And it had been snowing all night, something we don't get here in northwest Indiana. Everything was beautiful. And his grandmother remarked, doesn't it look like an artist painted this scenery? Did you know God painted this just for you, Bobby? Bobby said, yes, God did it, and he did it left-handed. Grandmother said, was a bit confused, and she asked, what makes you say God did it with his left hand? He said, well, Bobby said, in Sunday school, we learned that last week that Jesus sits on God's right hand. So. Okay. Well, he doesn't sit on his right hand because God is spirit, but he is, sits at his left hand, right? or at his right hand, I'm sorry, seated at his right hand, and the throne of majesty. Now, actually, the text tells us this Jesus seated at the right hand of the throne in the place of honor. That's what the right hand was, the place of honor and power, authority, and exaltation. That great truth was introduced to us clear back in Hebrews chapter 1. Do you remember this? Way back in 1, he just kind of threw this out here, just to kind of a little tidbit and then now he's coming back and picking it back up again. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And he, he's talking about Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he did what? Sat down where? 
at the right hand of the majesty on high. This just shows you how the hand of God is woven through this epistle, isn't it? The way that he just kind of introduces these little gems. He just kind of sparkle on themselves, and you're like, oh, I wonder what that means. Okay, well, that's cool. And then seven chapters later, you're like, oh, my goodness, that's what he was talking about. It just shows you how God's hand is woven in. All right, so this enthronement, if you remember, Jesus sitting at the right hand of God was what the Father promised to the Son in Psalm 110. Do you remember that? He said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That phrase, it says, in the heavens. Do you see that in verse 1 there, in the heavens? That refers to the dwelling place of God. Rather than an imperfect human priest who can only enter the Holy of Holies once a year and never stay there long, much less sit there permanently, we have a high priest seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. The point is this. Why would you ever consider going back to that old system? When you have such a great high priest permanently seated in the heavens, in the throne of majesty, that's where your high priest is seated. Their high priest could not do that. He couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. He couldn't provide continual access. He couldn't atone for your sins permanently and forever. Why would you ever go back to that old system when you have all of this in Christ? That's what he's asking. Not only did the high priest of Israel never sit down in the tabernacle, he never sat down on a throne. Only a priest after the order of Melchizedek could be enthroned. Remember, Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. Seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty is all part of Jesus' glorious exaltation after his death and burial. The first part of this exaltation, remember, was the resurrection. The second part was the ascension. The third is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. And... That's where he will remain until he comes again to meet those of us that are alive in the rapture. The author of Hebrews is saying, Now our great high priest, who even now sits after his once and for all sacrifice, sits also at the right hand of God in glory. What is he doing there? What is Jesus doing there? If he paid for it all, if he sat there, I mean, if he sat there and he sat down, that means his work is completed. What is he doing? Just waiting for God to say, okay, go. Say, God the Father, just go. Now, you know what he's doing? He's interceding for you and for me. Did you know that? He is continually interceding for you and for me. The author of Hebrews is saying, that's our great high priest. Tell me again why you would want to leave our great high priest who's seated at the complete of his atoning work on behalf of his people, who's also, who's also not only seated, but also seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. Tell me again which Levitical priest of the old covenant can do that for you. That's what he's saying. Now, I came across an interesting fact about sitting at the right hand of the throne that relates to the Sanhedrin. Just so you know, the Sanhedrin, remember, was the ruling body in Jerusalem that was made up of 70. 
right? 70 leaders, 70 elders. And they were responsible for making judgments over Israel. And there were always two scribes, and one to the right and one to the left of the judge. The one scribe who sat on the right hand and the other scribe sat on the left hand. And it was always the business of the scribe who sat on the right hand to write acquittals and the one who sat on the left hand to write judgments. The Bible says that Jesus came in John chapter 3, verse 17 to what? Condemn the world, not condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Where does Jesus sit? At the right hand. Jesus seated at the right hand, the seat of honor and power and authority, but also one of mercy and grace as he writes pardons for our sins. But when he returns again to this earth, he will rule from the throne of David in Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom, and he will not rule from a throne of mercy, but one of judgment. Now, Jesus is better because of his position. What position is that? Seated. Secondly, he was not only seated, he was seated where? At the right hand of the throne of majesty. No Levitical priest could ever sit down. Also, no Levitical priest could ever imagine even sitting down at the right hand of God, but our great high priest can and did. Jesus is better because a better high priest because of his position. Secondly, he, verse 2, he's better because of his place. Look at verse 2 together. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. Our text tells us that he's a minister. See that word, minister? That comes from two words, two Greek words. One, letreo, means belonging to the people. And the other one, ergon, or ergos, that means to work. So you work on behalf of the people, or the work that you do is belonging to the people. That's what a minister does. Which means that Jesus Christ, our great high priest, exalted in the heavens, seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty, at this very moment, is ministering on your behalf. Did you know that? Right now, even now, as we're gathered to worship, Jesus Christ, instead of being consumed, and rightfully so, in his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, could be saying, exalt me, exalt me, exalt me. But instead of that, you know what he's doing? He's interceding for you, even now, as we're in here, worshiping him. That's our great high priest. If it was me, in my sinful heart, I would be like, ooh, check this out, I'm on the right hand of God. But not our great high priest. Even though he deserves that great honor, that's not what he's doing. What he's doing is interceding for you. So as your minds are strained and you're thinking about what you're going to do after lunch and, and he's wanting you to focus in on the text, he's interceding right now. This is what my, this is what my spirit needs to do. This is what they need next. They need to hear this part right here. This is the next thing. He's interceding for you non-stop, and not just us in this building, but all believers who are alive now today in the church, that's what he's doing. It's an amazing thing. He never stops serving. He's available day and night. I have to tell you, beloved, 
that blows my mind. That he would not only condescend from the glory of heaven, but that he would not take his rightful glory, but instead use that position to serve. It really shows me how selfish I can be at times. He's always serving. He never stops serving. He's available day and night. He condescends even in his glory now at the right hand of the throne of God to minister on my behalf when I have needs. And beloved, I have lots of needs. I'm a very needy person all the time. It's amazing. Notice that word sanctuary. That's the word that comes from the word hagios, which means holies. It's plural in our text. The sanctuary, so includes the holy, uh, the holies and the holy of holies. It's all of God's. Heaven is God's holy place. God has a holy place in heaven. That's where Jesus ministers. Notice it's also called a tabernacle. And it's the word true. It's the true tabernacle. Literally, not true as opposed to counterfeit, but true is genuine. It's the genuine one. The genuine tent or tabernacle which the Lord pitched for himself. It's the sanctuary where Jesus ministers on our behalf and serves as our great high priest. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. Flip over just a couple pages. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God. For whom? For us. Listen, the author wants you to see that Jesus is ministering in the true tabernacle, that his sacrifice was the real sacrifice, that the Levitical priest in the Old Covenant that ministered in the tabernacle and the temple were simply a foreshadowing of what Christ would do in the real temple with a once-and-for-all sacrifice. And so again, he asked, why would you walk away from our great high priest who ministers to us day and night from the sanctuary of God in the heavens, the Holy of Holies, to go back to a priest who ministers briefly from a sanctuary that is just a man-made copy of the real thing? Why would you do that? So let's just recap quickly as we prepare here. I want you to see the flow of argument here in verse 1 and 2. Jesus is a better high priest because of his position. He's seated at the right hand of God. High priests under the law were always working, never sitting. There are no chairs in the Old Testament tabernacle, none in the Old Temple, in the Holy of Holies, because their work was never done. Those Levitical Old Testament priests could not sit down because they had the responsibility to carry out all the matters pertaining to the altar, which was sin, sin, sin. There were nonstop sacrifices and washings and various offerings and priestly functions. So when we read here that Jesus is our great high priest and he's seated, that means his work is done. It is finished. There's no more need of any further sacrificial work. It is finished. Secondly, not only is he seated, he's seated where? At the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. And we learn from Melchizedek, 
in Psalm 110 that God the Father invited the Son to sit here. No human priest was ever invited to sit at the right hand of God. But Jesus is and was. The sanctuary he serves is the true sanctuary, not just a prototype. It's the reality. It's the real one. And a priest's responsibility was to minister in the tabernacle. The, the tabernacle and the temple were all about a relationship with God. Jesus Christ is the minister in the true tabernacle in the true heaven. Now the point is that Jesus Christ is presently and continually seated in the heavenlies, in a heavenly sanctuary, and he continues to minister as high priest on our behalf. That's what he doesn't want you to miss. And not only is Jesus Christ the means by which sinful men are reconciled to God through faith in him and his atoning work on the cross, but he's also the means that enables believers to have access to God in heaven also. So this is not just about going to heaven. This is about having access to God now and forever. And I think we miss that, beloved. I think we miss that sometimes. We focus so much on the salvation that we forget of the ongoing work that Christ is still doing on our behalf. And we need it. There's this thing called sanctification, this process of becoming more and more Christ-like. But we cannot complete that process without our great high priest interceding for us on our behalf. But he's not doing it in some random location. He's actually doing it in the true Holy of Holies at the right hand of the throne of majesty. And he never stops. And he's always there, day and night, 24-7. Always there. When Paul says, take hold of eternal life, he's saying, access heaven before you get to heaven. Do it now. You're not there practically, but positionally, do you realize you're already there because of your union with Christ? We have a high priest whose place of ministry is at the Father's right hand. There's no place on earth or in heaven that is more powerful. But are we continually seeking him through prayer? Beloved, I think some of us treat prayer like a spare tire. I mean, all of us have spare tires in our car just in case there's a flat or a slow leak of air, but most of the time we don't even think about it until something goes wrong. And then when it goes wrong, we go back to the trunk and get out the spare to get us out of a bad situation. But I think for prayer, a lot of us, prayer is like that. It's like a spare tire. We just use it when we're in trouble. Break glass here. Reach out for Jesus now. It's just in case. It's easy to forget about it until you really need it to get you out of a jam. It's something you're glad to have when you're caught in a real trial or dilemma that you can't fix. For many others, prayers like the national anthem before the football game. It gets the game started but simply has no connection with what anything that's going on in the field afterwards. I think sometimes that's how we think about prayer, about prayer. Why am I talking about prayer here at the end? Because... We have a great high priest, and not just any great high priest, but a great high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, 
who can be tempted in every sin that we've ever been tempted in, but without sin, who knows what it's like to be hurting and to be in pain and to be in doubt and to wonder and to have anxiety and to be discontent and to be frustrated. He knows the temptation to be all those things and yet without sin. And he says, remember back in chapter 4, come now before the throne of grace, right, boldly, and receive mercy and find grace when? In your time of need. Day and night, 24-7, Jesus is there for you. Let's not make our prayer life, beloved, just something where we break glass in case of emergency but rather make it a part of who we are in our walk of becoming more and more Christ-like every day. Why? Because we have a great high priest. A great high priest. I'm going to ask the men to come.